You are listening to the SCC Cast, weekly teaching and preaching from Springview Community Church. Find us on the web at www.springviewcc.org. We are located at 12881 Andersonville Road in Davisburg, Michigan. We welcome you to come as you are to experience a friendly worship setting with biblical preaching, teaching, and application. Now, here's Pastor Ben Glupker. Thank you, Ben, for leading us in that. We are in week four of a seven-week series called Back to the Book. Turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3. We were there last week, and we'll start there again this week. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Week four of a seven-week series entitled Back to the Book. Back to God's book, the Bible. We need to go back. In week one, we saw that the book has been lost. We looked at the story of Josiah and in God's word, portion of it lost in the temple, how they found it and how it changed them, how it reformed. Through it, Josiah and the people of Israel were changed. They turned back to God as they turned back to the book. And we talked about how every big step forward spiritually, and we need to take a step forward spiritually, every big step forward spiritually starts by turning back to the book. It's the book that God uses us to move forward spiritually. In week two, we saw that the book has a hero. We looked at how God's book is meant first and foremost to bring us to God himself. It's not just tips to live a better life. It's not just rules that must be followed. It's it's meant to bring us to God, to reveal Him as He truly is to us. And then last week, as we started in 2 Timothy 3, we looked at how the book has authority. The book has authority. What the book says, God says. We saw how it tells us there that all Scripture is breathed out by God. It is His words. And because they're His words, Because God is the supreme authority, the creator and sovereign ruler of the universe. His words carry his authority. What the book says, God says. Well, 2 Timothy 3, 16 goes on to say, All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable or useful. And then it gives us four things. We looked at the first one last week. That is profitable for teaching or doctrine. That is, it tells us authoritatively what we're supposed to believe, and how we're supposed to live. When the Bible tells us that we should believe this, that this thing is true, or that we should live in this way, that this is right, it is the same as God telling us that. Because it is God telling us that. It is His Word. We aren't, we saw, we aren't to stand over God's Word in judgment on it, as though we decide what parts of it we like or don't like, and, or what parts of it we can or cannot accept, or what parts of it we will or, or will not obey. We don't, we don't stand over it in judgment. We sit under it humbly. I saw a picture recently. This uh, picture comes from October of 1927, a conference called the Fifth Solvay International Conference that met in Brussels. Uh, it was a conference for physicists. 
on electrons and photons, which are a pretty new concept in that day. And, and particularly considering electrons and photons and relative, related quantum mechanics in light of Einstein's theory of relativity that was, had been recently developed. Some have called this, one place I saw this recently, called it the most intelligent picture ever taken. 17 of the 29 people in this picture had or would win Nobel Prizes. You see front and center is Albert Einstein himself, but other famous physicists were there. Niels Bohr, uh, Erwin Schrodinger, Heisenberg, Marie Curie, Max Planck. All the big names in physics were at this conference. And so I was thinking, you know, suppose that, that somehow... Somehow you could travel back in time and sit in the gallery of this meeting. One of the greatest collections of, of intellectual minds ever. And so you somehow get a seat in the gallery. I don't know if there really was a gallery, but we'll pretend there was. And so you're sitting in the gallery, and um, the, uh, uh, the uh, plan for the day is that Einstein and Bohr, we'll say, Niels Bohr, they're each going to offer opposing perspectives on a key, complex, quantum mechanics issue. And so you're there to hear this live through some amazing thing. And so the, the moderator says, we're going to have a paper first by Professor Einstein and then by Professor Bohr, and we're going to have a judge who's going to listen to the papers and at the end is going to render a verdict. Which one is right? Which one properly explains how electrons and photons work and helps us understand quantum mechanics? And you say, wow. So these two guys going head to head and then a judge to settle the dispute. And the moderator says, and the judge's name is, and then he calls your name. Come on down. And you're like, <laughs> me? Come on down. And someone comes and gets you and takes you down and sits you in the judge's chair and says, all right. We're going to listen to these papers, and you're going to decide which one is right. And you're saying, well, most of us, Josh probably could resolve this dispute, but Josh Herwire, but the rest of us, right? The rest of us would sit there and go, I can't judge. How, how could I possibly? I, I, I couldn't begin to. How could I be the judge of this incredibly complex, incredibly difficult question? The creator of the world has spoken in a book, and yet every day, many people, sometimes us, sit over the book and say, well, that might be true. Maybe I should do that, but I, I don't know, I'm not sure. And, and we sit over the book in judgment as though we had the position, the wisdom, the authority to decide what's true and what's acceptable and what ought to be or what ought not to be there. We're not qualified to do that. No creature is qualified to stand in judgment over the creator or his book. What we're supposed to do is sit under it, humbly receiving and believing and obeying it. We should do that because it's right, but we should also do it, as Peter, or Paul's pointing on here in 2 Timothy, because it's profitable for us to do so. Which brings us to this morning's message. 
The book is profitable, we saw last week, for teaching. It points us to the truth, but there's a flip side to that I want to consider this morning. Uh, It's also profitable for, the second thing here in 2 Timothy 3.16, it's profitable teaching and for reproof. In other words, the book is profitable not just to articulate truth, but to correct false teaching. It both articulates the truth, we saw last week, and this week we want to consider how it corrects error. And this is vitally important because, to be clear, the book has enemies. The book has enemies. And I want to think about that with you this morning, not here in 2 Timothy. I want to look back to 2 Peter chapter 1, which we read earlier in our service. So turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. to read just the last couple verses of chapter 1 and then the first couple verses of chapter 2. 2 Peter 1, and I'm going to start reading in verse 19. This is God's word. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Let's pray. Father, I pray now you'd help us as we look at this, your word. Lord, we want to sit, not in judgment over, but humbly under it. We want to receive it as true, We want to receive it as profitable and useful. Father, we want to see it. I trust we want to see it actually change how we think and believe and love and live. And so for that, we'll need your help. We'll need the ongoing help of your spirit, both to reveal the truth of this to us, to impress the urgency of it on us, and and also to give us hearts that love the truth, even when it confronts us in our sins and our idolatries and, and, and I pray you'd use your word now to change us for your glory, our good, and our joy in you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. False teaching has a long history. The book has had enemies for a long time. In fact, if you go back to the very first chapters of the Bible, we see God create a world and create it good and put Adam and Eve, the first man and woman, in it. They are in paradise They have only one command, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and and the serpent comes and immediately begins to attack God and his word. Did God really say, you can't eat of it? Is that really true? It's not true. He raises two key questions of doubt. Did God really say that? And of course, 
One of the ways that many people deal with difficulties in the Bible today is, well, did God really say that? Is that really God's word? Is that, is that God's perspective or is it Peter's perspective or Paul's perspective or Moses or someone else? Did God really say that? And the second common doubt question is, is it really true? Even if it says it, is it really true? And those doubt questions from the very beginning come down all the way to today. Every false teaching is ultimately satanic because it seeks to overthrow God as he's revealed himself to be. Which helps explain an interesting story told in the early church. There was a great man, a a bishop and pastor in what is now Turkey named Polycarp. Probably you've heard of Polycarp, the first well-known Christian martyr outside of the New Testament. And he was a remarkable godly man with remarkable influence. But the story is told of Polycarp that he once met Marcion. Now Marcion's name has lived on too because he was the founder of what came to be called Marcionism, a heresy that denied that... um, that the God of the Old Testament was the same as Jesus of the New Testament. Marcion didn't like the Jews and he didn't like the Old Testament, so he rejected the Old Testament and said he rejects that angry, judgmental God. We just want the Jesus God of love in the New Testament. You can hear that today if you look around. Not very hard. And so Marcion taught this, and of course eventually the church would mark this as a heresy, but in his day, Marcion was looking for acceptance. He was looking for people to say, yes, this is legitimate biblical Christianity. And so as Irenaeus tells the story, Marcion and Polycarp ran into each other, and Marcion said, Polycarp, recognize us. In other words, give your stamp of approval that, you, that we are legitimately part of the church and legitimate Christian teachers. And Polycarp said, I recognize you. I recognize the firstborn of Satan. No minced words, right? Lay it out, say it like it is. Because false teaching is all ultimately satanic. Satan is constantly trying to undermine the word and undermine the truth of what it says. It sounds harsh, but the early church was roiled by heresies and false teachings. One of the reasons is though that all the New Testament had written at that point, it hadn't all been collected and collectively affirmed as part of the canon of Scripture. So there were uncertainties, there were false teachings and writings going around. We don't have time to talk, there are dozens of them. Gnosticism is a well-known one. That, that, That matter is bad and the spirit is good, which is a big problem when Jesus took on human flesh and human matter. Arianism, carried on for centuries, denied that Jesus was really God. Athanasius, the great hero who stood up and disputed that. Pelagianism denied that there was original sin, affirmed that people could choose the good without any help from God at all, and we could go on and on. The church fathers attacked heresy and false teaching with harsh language. It's not confined just to the church. At the end of the medieval era, uh, the reformers would sometimes, particularly Luther, who seemed to always speak harshly, uh, spoke harshly of uh, some of the, the corruption and false teaching in the medieval Roman church, referred to the Pope and the Roman church as the Antichrist and the whore of Babylon from Revelation. Harsh words, maybe going too far. But, but if their rhetoric around false teaching was sometimes too harsh, I suspect that our concern for false teaching is probably too soft. It's probably too soft today. I'm not sure it's ever been easier to be misled by false teaching than it is now. There are so many voices. You remember in 1 Corinthians 1, there's conflict in the Corinthian church, and and Paul says, look, this is what people are saying. Some are saying, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I, I follow Peter, I follow Christ. Four. Four choices. Today, 
millions of voices, readily accessible through publishing and through the internet and through TV and radio. There are so many voices, so many opportunities to hear teaching, both good and bad. Do we have the discernment to distinguish between the two? Well, Peter gives us some insight here. At the end of chapter 1, he affirms a prophecy. All prophecy of Scripture came from God. It didn't come from man. It wasn't given by interpretation of man, but men wrote it as they were carried along by God. But, chapter 2, verse 1, there's also false prophets. Back in the Old Testament, there were prophets communicating God's word, but there were false prophets telling lies. Words they claimed were from God, but were their own words. And now he says, there will be false teachers among you. And then he gives us six things here that I want to think about this morning with you. Six things about false teaching. Here's the first one. False teaching operates by stealth. He says, false teachers who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. Maybe it's intentionally snuck in. Maybe not, but but it comes into the church from the outside. And it comes by stealth. It's not what it initially appears. See, teachings don't start off, usually. Usually, teachings don't creep into the church and say, contrary to what you may believe, Jesus was terrible, there is no heaven, and the earth was created by outer space aliens, right? No one would buy that. No, no one would jump from biblical truth to that. But the, how false teaching comes in, it's just, it's just off by a, by a little degree. It's just, it's just a little bit off. And it sounds, it sounds a little better than what we previously thought, or it's a little easier to handle, or a little easier to accept. And of course, it starts off by just a couple degrees off, and it doesn't seem that bad. But as time goes on, it gets further and further away. False teachers don't announce themselves. I'm coming in here to change fundamentally what you believe. It starts by stealth. We're just going to make a little modification. And it starts small, and it grows big. Secondly, false teaching denies the gospel. Here's the way Peter says it at the end of verse 1. Even denying the master who bought them. Denying the master who bought them. They were, or or at least appeared to be, have been bought by Christ. And by bought, what I mean is what Peter says in 1 Peter 1, where he says, you were ransomed, purchased, he says, from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. I'm not saying in Christ, in his death and resurrection, in the gospel message, Christ purchased you for himself, purchased forgiveness of your sins. Now, we need to be careful here, because when we talk today to our modern years, when we talk about buying someone else, that sounds like slavery, it sounds like trafficking or something. But, but exactly the opposite is here true. In the gospel, Christ is buying people from slavery. He's redeeming them from slavery to sin. He's buying them for himself, which is the best possible place anybody can be. So you won't belong to sin anymore. It won't be your master. It won't own you. It won't lead to the destruction. It inevitably leads you because now, God says, through Christ, you are 
mine. That's where we want to be. But false teaching denies the gospel. It denies the master who bought them. It turns us away from Christ. It may not start there. It doesn't come in saying, we've got to rethink Jesus, because I'm not sure he's the guy we're in. It doesn't start there. It ends up there. It ends up denying the gospel. Here's the third thing. False teaching brings destruction. It brings destruction. It's all over 2 Peter. He says it here at the end of verse 1, bringing in destructive heresies, denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Look down at verse 9 of chapter 2. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials, to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Verse 12, these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed. If we look at chapter 3, verse 10, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. The earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Verse 15, count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote you according to the wisdom given him as he does in all his letters when he speaks to them of these matters. These are, there are some things in them that are hard to understand which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction. False teaching brings destruction. Why? Is, is, it a, is it a damnable offense to be wrong? No, but, but false teaching isn't merely error. So, for instance, we're not talking here about issues that Christians have in good conscience disagreed about for a long time. Christians committed to the authority of the Bible, to the authority of God's book, disagree about a lot of things because sometimes, as Paul, Peter says of Paul's writings, some things are hard, some things are difficult. So good Christians who love God and his word disagree about, for instance, baptism. We are a, essentially a Baptist church. We baptize believers after they come to and can profess faith. But we have many brothers and sisters in Presbyterian and Reformed churches particularly who, who baptize babies, and they base that on the Bible. And I, and I don't think ultimately their explanation is, is convincing, but I understand where they're coming from, and they hold it in good conscience. I don't call them false teachers, at least not this kind of false teacher. I just, I just think they're not ultimately right. But they're still brothers and sisters in Christ. We'll share eternity with them. Or Christians have disagreed about uh, how exactly the first chapter of Genesis works. Are, are the, must it be six literal 24-hour days? Could it be longer? It's a difficult question. Good Christians can disagree on that. Or how uh, God's sovereignty over all things and, and human responsibility and free will work. That's complicated, but good Christians who, who base their understanding in the Bible on both sides of issues like that, that's not what we're talking about here about disagreements between people who, uh, different Christians who hold from the scriptures different views. They're complicated issues and they're difficult. But the false teaching that Peter is concerned about is one that ultimately rejects the message and the authority of the Bible itself. Especially in this way, especially in regard to the reality of the coming salvation and judgment of God. That's the big issue here in 2 Peter. Back at the beginning of chapter 3, look, look at verse 1. He says, This is now the second letter I'm writing to you, beloved. 
In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind, by the way, a reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through apostles, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires, and they'll say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation." For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago, the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. In other words, Peter's saying, look, people are going around saying, what, what do you mean? What do you mean judgment's coming? Things just appear to be going on like they've always gone on. Nothing looks any different to me. I don't think he's coming. I don't think there's a salvation coming. I don't think there's a judgment coming. And Peter says they deliberately overlook that God has already judged the earth once by water. And he's going to judge it again, he'll go on to say, by fire and judgment. He said, you forget that the Lord is patient, not wishing that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. Why hasn't it happened yet? Because God is patient. He wants people to repent and turn to God through faith. But don't think, Peter says, that it means he's not coming. But this is a common, common Thing that false teaching will emphasize. It will take the seriousness of sin, the holiness of God, the severity and certainty of judgment, and, and minimize them so that we might start live in ways that please us. We see the same thing in the Old Testament. Um, in Jeremiah 14, Jeremiah is a true prophet of God, and Jeremiah, near the end of uh, Israel's time, before they're, they're captured and destroyed by Babylon and carried into exile, the prophets have been speaking out against their, their evilness for, for generations. And Jeremiah prophesies. Well, we looked at Jeremiah 36 last week. Remember, he, he wrote down on the scroll, and he said, take it to the temple, read it to the king. Maybe the people will repent. Well, back in Jeremiah 14... He says, says this, verse 13, I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, the prophets say to them, You shall not see the sword, nor shall you have famine, but I will give you assured peace in this place. So, so here you got Jeremiah, God's prophet, saying, Judgment's coming. Babylon is coming. This place is going to be destroyed and carried off and punished by God. And then you got these other prophets saying, No sword, no trouble, no judgment. And the Lord said to me, The prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I didn't send them, nor did I command them or speak to them. They are prophesying to you a lying vision, worthless divination, and the deceit of their own minds. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who prophesy in my name, although I didn't send them, and who say, sword and famine will not come on this land, by sword and famine these prophets shall be consumed. Jeremiah says, God, I'm prophesying your words. There's going to be judgment. These prophets are saying no, and God says, I didn't send them. I didn't say that to them. Why would, why would a prophet say that? Why would a prophet say, no, 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 we're going to tell the people that no judgment's coming? Because that's the message people want to hear. That's what we want to hear. Right? Jeremiah's message says, if you repent, if you turn from your sin, if you obey God in his word, perhaps he will relent and deliver us. They don't want to turn from their sin. They don't want to repent. They don't want to change. So they listen to these prophets. You're fine. Judgment's not coming as you were. That's what we want to hear. 
And so those false prophets get an audience. False teaching tends to minimize the seriousness of sin, the holiness of God, and the certainty of judgment. It takes sin and says, not a big deal. It takes the holiness of God and says, don't worry about it. It takes the certainty of judgment and says, nah, probably not. So that we can keep living like we want to live. Well, that clearly leads into the fourth character of false teaching. It appeals to our sinful desires. Peter goes on to say, many, many will follow their sensuality. Why sensual? Other versions say shameful. Well, because false teaching is often not so much about wrong beliefs as it is wrong behavior. They may try to pin it up and and undergird it with false beliefs and teachings, but the ultimate concern is wrong behavior. Back in 2 Timothy chapter 3, when Paul talks about false teachers, he doesn't emphasize so much their wrongness, but their badness. They're evil. They're terrible. We read the list last week in church. They're terrible people. They're bad people. And that's why false teaching is attractive. It appeals to our sinful desires. I like that teacher because he tells me that I can do what I want to do. That's one of the reasons in the Old Testament we see Israel constantly chasing after idols. And they constantly get punished for it. And after a while you think, God, why, why, do, they, why do they offer sacrifices in that temple instead of your temple? Why do they keep doing that? Because the pagan religions all had worship that involved debauchery, orgies. That is fun, right? Why do we chase false religion? It's just more fun. It lets me do what I want to do. I mean, no one would make up a false religion that nobody liked. If you make up a false religion, you make it the way you like it. False teachers appeal to our sinful desires. Let me give you just one contemporary example. And, and I think it's the most pressing and prominent contemporary example, and that is the area of sexual ethics. Sexual ethics. The Bible teaches clearly about sexual ethics. Sex is a gift from God. A gift to be enjoyed in the context of a marriage between a man and a woman. That is very unpopular and highly politically incorrect today. Because that's not what people want to live by. And so there are, within the church, it doesn't surprise us that outside the church, people live in all sorts of ways and with all sorts of sexual ethics. That doesn't surprise us. But what's troubling is how many voices within the church look for ways to rationalize a sub-biblical sexual ethic to make Christianity more palatable to people outside the church. I don't bring this up to attack anybody, but simply to say that kind of teaching is destructive because it tells people, here's an area where you don't have to submit to God. That's a lie. False teaching appeals to our sinful desires. Fifth, 
false teaching slanders the name of Christ and his church. This, since it's not just wrong beliefs, but wrong behavior, that behavior becomes visible. It becomes apparent, evident to people outside the church. And in many areas, those areas of behavior actually bring the name of Christ and his church into disrepute. It slanders them. Or or here at ESV translated, the, the way of truth will be blasphemed because of this living. Finally, in sixth, false teaching exploits people. It exploits people. It will act as though it is delivering them, but it actually enslaves and uses them. The New Testament frequently describes false teachers as greedy. Greedy. For fame. For influence. For money. False teaching exploits people. So what are we to do? What are we to do? At the end of 2 Peter 3, look at verse 15. Actually, we'll just start in verse 14. It says, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, that's the coming salvation and judgment of God, since you're waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand. Well, we know that, don't we? If you've studied God's word, there are things that can be difficult to understand. Um, As they do the other scriptures. So notice Peter already recognizes that Paul's writings are scriptured. They're authoritative and inspired. There are things that are hard to understand, as there are in other scriptures, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you're not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. Don't don't let them drag you away. Don't lose your sure footing, your solid foundation on God's word. Don't let that happen. But instead, verse 18, grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We need to grow in grace. Don't be led astray. Don't be led unto destruction. Don't don't lose your sure footing in Christ and the gospel by these false teachers. That's what chapters 2 and 3 are all about. How do we do that? How do we grow in grace? Well, he set all of this up back in chapter 1. Look at verse 16 of chapter 1. He wants them to be strong. He wants them to be secure, not to lose their footing. That's why he says in chapter 1, verse 10, Brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these things, you'll never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He wants them to stand firm to find ultimately God's salvation. So he says, verse 12, I intend to remind you of these things. And then he explains how in verse 16. He says, we didn't follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter says, look, when we came to you and shared the gospel, we weren't sharing myths. We weren't sharing with you our own ideas. False teachers are going to come in. They're going to lead you into myths. They're going to share with you ideas. Peter says, that's not what we did. Verse 17, uh, or right second part of 16. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty for when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory. 
This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter says, look, when Jesus was transfigured, there was just three of us, Peter, James, and John, his closest disciples. We were up on the mountain, and all of a sudden this bright light and a voice from heaven, and Jesus shines and radiates glory. He said, and we heard the voice from heaven. We heard God the Father say, this is my beloved son. I'm not passing along hearsay, Peter says. I'm not passing along my own ideas and myths. I heard it. I was there. I heard the Father testify to the Son. This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. But Peter's readers weren't there. But that's okay. Look at verse 19. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. He says, but you have the book. You weren't on the mountain, but you have the book. More fully confirmed. To which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart and he goes on to you. Because Scripture didn't come from any man's interpretation. It came from God. You see what Peter's telling him. You had to stand firm, stand against false teaching. And how do you do that? You go back to the book. You go back to the book. Where God's word is more fully confirmed. Peter says, I was on the mountain. I heard the voice testifying to the truth of who Jesus is. You have something better. You've got the book. You've got the ongoing prophetic word of God from the Old Testament and now through the New Testament as well that confirms God's word and God's truth to us. So, what do we do? Turn back to 2 Timothy. We'll finish there this morning. One obvious application, of course, is we must read the book. We looked at that last week. We sit under the authority of God's book, first of all, by reading it. But look at 2 Timothy 2.15. I think 2 Timothy 2.15 is, or at least used to be, the Awana theme verse. In the King James, it reads like this. Study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman needing not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Well, the ESV says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Study probably isn't as good a translation there, but it's a great application. How are you going to do your best to handle the word of truth rightly? How are you going to do that? You got to study it. You got to read it, but, but more than just read it, you've got to give it some time, some thought, some questions. We need to know the book so well that truth is clear to us, an error obvious. There's a very old illustration, you've probably heard it before, about how you tell counterfeit money from real money. Well, the trick is you've got to know real money really well. And if you know the real thing with clarity and lots of observation, when counterfeit comes by, you'll see it because you know the real thing. And so it is with God's word. So it is God's word. We might say this morning, that to know the truth rightly, we need to know the book well. We need to know it well. The better we know the book, the less likely we are to fall prey to its errors. And they're everywhere. They're everywhere. And, and, and you're not going to go looking for them. 
No one goes to the bookstore and says, what? what book could I find that might lead me to swerve off the path of truth and wander into the field of theological error? Nobody goes looking for that. It comes in subtly by stealth. It offers something attractive. Maybe it doesn't have to be as hard to follow Jesus as you thought. Maybe you can not listen to that command or not recognize this principle or this truth or this doctrine that people don't like. It comes in by stealth. We need to know the truth, and to know it well, we need to know the book well. We need to read. We need to study. We need to give ourselves to careful reading, thought, and study of the Word. One of the ways you can do that, one of the resources that will help you with that is, is other Christians. Other people who are following Christ and seeking His Word. We, we do better and learning the truth and recognizing error when we're not doing it all by ourselves. That's one of the things we aim to do in our together groups. We aim to look at God's word and see what it says and, and put it into practice, and, and we trust that together we'll understand the truth more clearly and we'll follow it more faithfully. To know the truth rightly, we need to know the book well. The book has enemies. Book's enemies are your enemies. God wants to bring us back to the book again and again, to discern truth, to identify error that will lead us ultimately to destruction. False teaching wants us, wants to minimize sin, minimize our understanding of God's holiness, and diminish the certainty of God's coming salvation and judgment. Don't let it do that. Commit yourself to the Word, to reading it, studying it, learning it, so that you, you are so saturated in God's Word that error becomes clear. Let's pray. Father, I pray for your help. None of us, none of us is looking to fall into error. None of us is looking, I don't think, to bail from the truth of your word so that we can go our own way and set our own standards and follow our own teachings and our own preferred ideas of truth. None of us is looking for that, but it's, it's gunning for us. And our, our old selves, our sinful hearts that still tag along even after we've trusted you, Lord, they, they, we want to go our own way. We would prefer the truth to be exactly what we want it to be that makes our lives easy and convenient and suits our pleasures and passions. Um, but Lord, it's profitable for us to be reproved by your word. So Lord, we need again, as we've said the last couple of weeks, we need a humble hearts. We need to go to your word looking for ways in which it might reprove our false thinking and false beliefs. We need much grace for this. I pray that we would commit ourselves to it diligently as a church. I pray we commit ourselves to do it together, that even within our together groups as we, we seek to follow your word, that you'd give us insight and understanding, that we would be an encouragement and a help to each other. Lord, I pray that we would know the truth rightly by knowing your book well. So bring us back again and again to your book. I pray in Jesus' name.